Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. A different kind of expedited shipping. This is WBS News Radio and it's 401. E-commerce giant Amazon announced Tuesday that it was offering employees in favor of forming a union same-day delivery of busted kneecaps, as well as other perks. A spokesman for Amazon explained, We at Amazon value every one of our employees, including those considering forming or joining a union. In fact, we value such employees so much that we're offering them expedited shipping of all beatdowns, same-day delivery of busted kneecaps, and the lowest prices anywhere on a nice long rest with the fishes. The spokesman conceded that Amazon has a reputation as being anti-union, but said that label is completely unwarranted. We've always treated our employees who might choose to unionize with respect. Oh, wait, I forgot. There haven't been any of those. I wonder why that is. The spokesman went on to say that anyone found leading a union-forming push at any Amazon facility might find a genuine horse's head has been delivered right to their bed free of charge. This is WBS News Radio. And in a Women's History Month moment, the mystery of the pink box. Best I've ever seen you play, Sally. You seem so poised and self-assured today. Thanks, Vicky. I am. I never even knew it was possible to be this sure of myself as a woman. What's that? Oh, it's this wonderful new woman's product. I don't know, I've just been so confident and secure since I've had it. Well, what's it for? <laughs> Confidence. Well, do you put it on you or in you? I guess so. <laughs> Is it welcome protection against odor all year round? Possibly. Does it come in flavors? Maybe. What's two and two? Four. Just checking. <laughs> well, does it have a name? Uh, I don't know. Well, how do you open it? I don't know. I honestly don't know. I just know I've never felt so feminine or so protected in my whole life. So, if you want to feel fresh and confident all year round, look for the pink box, wherever it might be sold. A woman's product so personal, even we don't know what it is. Having it solves the problem of being without it. Well, actually, those were two Saturday Night Live original veteran icons back in a 1977 skit, the late great Gilda Radner, and actress-comedian and writer Lorraine Newman, perhaps best known for her villain, Lawanda Dumore, in Problem Child 2, but also for Laverne and Shirley, Stardust Memories, St. Elsewhere, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Coneheads, Friends, Curb Your Enthusiasm, Despicable Me, Trophy Wife, and many more. And now Newman has gathered that multitude of life experiences in her just-released audio memoir, May You Live in Interesting Times, in which she reflects on some major, no-laughing-matter moments in her life, including, quote, darker truths, her drug addiction, and memories of George Carlin on the debut of Saturday Night Live, along with how Saturday Night Live changed American comedy and changed her. First, she reads an excerpt from May You Live in Interesting Times, then Lorraine Newman. I've always written in some form or another. Essays, character monologues, sketches, forwards to other people's books, even lectures for crying out loud. But this form, memoir, really kicked my ass. Over the years, many people have urged me to write a memoir, and not just for the obvious SNL reasons. When they learned that I grew up with movie star neighbors, studied mime in Paris with Marcel Marceau, which I try to keep on the DL, learned improv at the age of 16, auditioned for Bob Hope, hung out at Duke's Tropicana Coffee Shop when I was 19, and sometimes ate breakfast with Martin Scorsese, was a founding member of the Groundlings Theater Company and had kids in my 40s, and reinvented myself as a voiceover actor dealing with my demons all along the way. Well, that's when people say they want to know more. 
But part of what held me back is that my thoughts and emotions turned whatever some might consider my accomplishments into a repertoire of failure and shame. As literary critic William Zisner said in Writing About Your Life, writers are stuck with the temperament they're born with. Still, I decided to give it a shot. These are just some of the things I then proceeded to do to avoid writing this memoir. Wrote a whole lot of other stuff. Made lists of things I needed to do before I could start the memoir. Didn't do any of the things on those lists. Read other people's memoirs. Read books on how to write a memoir. Shopped online. Binge-watched Breaking Bad. Hated myself. Finally, I did the deed. I completed a first draft 12 years ago. And the attempts at a second draft, which I swear to God, I thought would simply involve spelling and punctuation, made me so disgusted I shoved what I had into a drawer where it gathered dust until the next time I tried to take a stab at it. I attempted this stab nine times. Then I got an offer from Audible, which was looking for humorous memoirs. That brought these pages out of the drawer for the tenth time. But it also raised the question, what about my darker truths? Would the telling of my struggles with self-doubt, depression, and addiction be off the table if I couldn't present them in ways that were amusing? What, I'm supposed to have a sense of humor about that? Well, why not? It'd probably do me a world of good. There are big chunks of my life that I'll be leaving out of this memoir because I'm not sure they'll be interesting to people or it's too intimate and or I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. And I'm sure there's a lot of great stuff I don't remember. What can I say? Don't do drugs. But here's the thing. I've lived in interesting times and borne witness to and participated in many significant cultural movements in this country. And that's pretty cool. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Hi. Now, it seemed as if you were pretty ambivalent about writing your memoir, as if you almost didn't want to do it. Can you talk about that? Well, um, I was hesitant in the sense that I was in a very bad place um, emotionally uh, when I first started writing the book. Um, not in terms of my life, but when I revisited a lot of things, I would get so depressed that I would just put the book away until I took it out again and tried another time to write it. Um, but over the years, you know, I've, I've gotten a lot of clarity. I've um, grown healthier in my heart and mind and was able to really uh, have a perspective that I, was, I, will, I hope will offer people um, a sense of identifying no matter what you do in your life. And, you know, I, I came upon this through line, which was uh, the cultural, the pop culture movement that I was able to either witness or be a part of. And you make reference to what you term as your, quote, darker truths. What can you say about that? Um, well, uh, I learned that uh, through therapy, clearly, that um, I learned through therapy that, uh, you know, neglect can uh, do things to a person's sense of uh, self-worth. And so I'm kind of, I, I was operating from that perspective, which took many years to uh, refocus you know, and understand that, um, you know, those impressions don't have to necessarily rule your life and they're not true. So um, that, that was uh, the kind of stuff that and uh, my drug addiction, my learning disabilities, um, my uh, lack of confidence, all that kind of stuff was, um, even though I knew that it was important for me to talk about it, I didn't know if I wanted to be that exposed. What would you say is the upside of fame and the downside of fame? Well, um, <laughs> I've never gotten that question, Prairie. That's such an interesting question. Um, 
you know, having grown up in Los Angeles and seeing famous people when I went to the market uh, or Christmas shopping, that kind of stuff, uh, I had, a, I think, a really sober, you should pardon the expression, um, perspective on what fame could be. I recognized how transitory it was and how it doesn't really um, have a lasting impact on an individual's life. Um, and I forgot the rest of your question, <laughs> the downside of fame. The downside is that, you know, people think that they know you and um, they think that the things that they say won't have an effect on you. I mean, uh, people, a guy came up to me one time and said, uh, are you Lorraine Newman? I said, yes. And he said, I thought it was you, but you weren't ugly enough. Mm. So those are the kind of things that you uh, can also experience, mm. kind of the flip side. And any memories of George Carlin to share? Because, you know, it was his appearance on our radio station that led to the FCC obscenity laws in broadcasting. Uh-huh, the seven dirty words. Yes, it was his appearance on our radio station. Yeah, I just was so thrilled to meet him. And um, the content that he did on our show, which was our very first show, I'd never seen it before. So I felt so privileged to be able to uh, see material that was premiering on our show. Um, we didn't have much contact with him because the show was just finding its form. Uh, so a lot of his stuff was by himself. He was doing stand-up. Although there was a great sketch he was in, which was Alexander the Great's high school reunion, which I thought was hilarious, but it was cut before air. And what about citing Richard Pryor as a major influence in your life in leading you into comedy and, and in understanding comedy? Well, Richard Pryor wasn't a typical stand-up. He did do characters, which is something that I've always been uh, most comfortable doing. But it was also um, his perspective and style were very unique to him. And uh, for me, there was nobody funnier. Uh, and I also, I met him when I was 14. He was friends with my sister. So that when he hosted SNL, I came up to him and I said, I don't know if you remember me, but I'm Tracy Newman's little sister. <laughs> and uh, of course he lit up and, and it, it made for a really comfortable um, experience. And all through my, my life subsequent to the show, I, I had encounters with him and they were always wonderful and I could never believe that I had that rapport with him. I always felt so in awe of him. And looking back on Saturday Night Live, how do you feel the show changed comedy? And how is comedy changing Saturday Night Live today and with the new censorship and cancel culture? And how you feel Saturday Night Live changed you? Mm-hmm. Well, that's a big question. Well... I think over the years, SNL has been consistent in the sense that they've always had great writers and great cast members. And that's, I think, why it's stayed so relevant, is that the cast members reflected uh, their own generation. So they were always relevant to the new audiences coming along. Uh, I think comedy has gotten a lot more personal. Uh, people you know, like alternative people like Zach Galifianakis and uh, what would be considered, you know, alternative. A lot of those people have hosted the show and been brought to the forefront where they might have remained, you know, um, not smaller venues. I think the recognition of new styles of comedy is just something that moves, moves the style along. And writing your memoir and looking back on your life, did it change you in any way, writing the memoir? Yes. Yeah, it did. Um, it, it gave me a chance to kind of pull back and see the big picture, something I've never really been good at. And my friend and original SNL writer Alan Zweibel pointed out that it's kind of really a happy ending mm. in the sense that, you know, I, I've overcome a lot of my struggles and I've gone on to have what I consider to be a really wonderful, blessed life. Mm. Okay, well, thank you so much, Lorraine Newman, for calling into our show. Thank you, Prairie. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.
and May You Live in Interesting Times, a memoir, is an audio original release. And next up on Arts Express, in our literary celebration this month, we present a reading of the late-famed beat writer Jack Kerouac, born March 12, 1922, and actually next year will mark the 100th anniversary of his birth. Kerouac reads with jazz accompaniment, American Haiku, a beat generation voyage, in no way Whitman's celebration of this country, but rather post-World War II alienation coming to terms with a neo-imperialist America. In my medicine cabinet, the winter fly has died of old age. Well, here I am, 2 p.m. What day is it? tree looks like a dog barking at heaven. Prayer beads on the holy book, my knees are cold. Morning frost, the cats step slowly. No telegram today, only more leaves fell. of the Gandharvas is full of aging young couples. Early morning yellow flowers, thinking about the drunkards of Mexico. National scene, late afternoon sun in those trees. Nightfall, boy smashing dandelions with a stick. my purring cat to the moon, I sighed. August moon, oh, I got a boil on my thigh. Drunk as a hoot owl, writing letters by thunderstorm. All day long, wearing a hat that wasn't on my head. young girls running up the library steps with shorts on. Mm-hmm. 
crossing the football field, coming home from work, the lonely businessman. Useless, useless, heavy rain driving into the sea. After the shower, among the drenched roses, the bird thrashing in the bath. itself from the roof by a self-shat thread. Snap your finger. Stop the world. Rain falls harder. Nightfall, too dark to read the page, too cold. In my medicine cabinet, the winter fly has died of old age. each other, my cats stop when it thunders. Spring evening, the two 18-year-old sisters. Postman is late. The toilet window is shining. Wash hung out by moonlight, Friday night in May. baseball field, a robin hops along the bench. Blackbird. No! Bluebird! Branch, still jumping. Rumpled couch, the lady's voice next door. The bottoms of my shoes are clean from walking in the rain. Why are you staring at me? I'm not a flower. The barn swimming in a sea of windblown leaves. Blue 
glow worm sleeping on this flower. Your light's on. And thank you, Gordon Coombs, for that presentation. on the show, Korean-Australian actor Leonardo Nam has just come out in two very different movies, the family comedy Yesterday, co-starring with Jennifer Garner, and Phobias, a horror movie about the government making you crazy. Now apparently Nam, known for TV's Westworld, opposite Thandie Newton, didn't have to go far inside himself to play terrified in a horror movie owing to the rise in anti-Asian race hate attacks in this country. Nam will discuss all that, including the recent massacre of Asian women in Atlanta. First, some scenes from Phobias. to control the population. They're weaponizing fear? Let's get you hooked up. We need to get out of this place. Phobia is described as five dangerous patients with extreme phobias subjected to a crazed doctor using them in his quest to weaponize fear. So are you one of those dangerous patients in the movie or the crazed doctor? Uh, good question. Uh, I am one of the uh, dangerous patients. Uh, and I'm one of the dangerous patients that uh, finds a reason to, um, to fight back and uh, you know, leads the charge to uh, make for a better day. And where did you go inside yourself or your life experience to relate to playing an extreme phobia person? You know, uh, I've got to say, I think that's something, a, a, hum, a human quality that we all have. And we um, hold on to those phobias and, and to hide them as best as we can. So I didn't really have to go far to... to to um, kind of tap into that, to play this, this character in Robophobia, this segment of the film that I'm in. Um, and really, you know, the film itself starts with uh, my character, who um, an Asian guy who is taking care of his father, but then subject to um, a racist attack at the beginning of, of the film. And part of that is my journey of uh, understanding, you know, wanting to fight back and, and being in this position 
um, of being subjected to this bullying, but then also understanding the larger kind of um, life journey that I have of taking care of my father um, and what kind of that entails. And so it, the story is built starting like that, but then as the, the movie goes along, uh, my character then is able to uh, go from a passive um, position to a leadership position and finds a way forward in this crazy uh, government facility that I break into. Um, and I help and I find allies amongst the other people that are also uh, contained at that, at that facility. Uh, it was really fun, exciting uh, film to be a part of, and uh, they've got some wonderful uh, directors and uh, executive producers on the team. And so I was so lucky to, to be working with the people that have worked on uh, things like Radio Silence or Radio Not or the um, upcoming Scream franchise. Um, and so, yeah, super thrilled. And you also happened to be in another film at the same time, opened just a week prior, yesterday, co-starring with Jennifer Garner. What led you into that very different film? Uh, I love the the book. I have kids that are four years old, uh, twin boys, and so my world revolves around um, you know kids' books. Uh, and so I loved uh, that book, and I also love work Jennifer Garner. I thought that um, the work that she's done has been fantastic, and uh, she's worked with a um, an organization called Save the Children, which is uh, reading books. To um, kids, especially during the pandemic, uh, and so that role and the uh, team that was working on uh, yesterday, uh, it was a, a, a team that I'd worked with before, and um, just in that world of comedy, I, I, I really enjoy that as well. And so that, to me, is what what made me want to do that project too. What about the growing anti-Asian racism in this country? Have you been a victim? And what are your thoughts about those mass murders of Korean-American women in Atlanta? Right, I think, well, first of all, thank you so much for uh, asking that question and, and using your platform and this space as a place where I can uh, talk about it. Um, I think the more that we talk about it and we find ways to bridge uh, communities together, the, the more healing that will happen. Um, I, you know, it makes me so sad. Uh, that that this is happening, um, but like in the movie, um, in phobias, you know, like I said in um, in my segment, my character is the uh, is subject to a um, a racist attack at the beginning of the film, and you know, two years ago when we worked on this film, I n- never would have thought that this would have been in the public eye the way that it was. Mm. One thing that the director Joe Film and I talked about, uh, and he also is uh, Asian, we talk, we said that. People weren't talking about this, um, that, you know, I had experienced that, he had experienced that, you know, I'd experienced that my whole life. Mm. And so in performing uh, that part, I didn't have to reach far, you know, it's so yeah. it's so close to the surface because, like I said, this is something that I have experienced, really, um, sometimes on a daily basis. Mm. Um, and so I was able to... Um, uh, you know, pull from my own experiences from that, but for entertainment. In the rea- in reality, what's happening now is it's absolutely so so sad and so shocking what's happened. And yes, we can focus on the negatives um, and how horrible uh, the things uh, have become, how how horrible things have become. But I want to take a moment right now just to highlight the positives of. Um, the people and the communities and the organizations that have come together cross-culturally and built bridges between uh, individuals and organizations that previously may not have had a direct line between each other. Mm. Um, and so I think for the community as a whole, not just the Asian or, or Asian American community, but the American community as a whole, this is a wonderful opportunity um, to see the, the wonderful heart and the togetherness that we have um, especially through such difficult times. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, you know, on my Instagram page, there is a, um, a, a direct links and um, places that if people want to, to help um, uh, monetarily, um, there are funds uh, that are going out and helping directly the individuals that are um, affected uh, by, by such uh, horrible attacks. Uh, but also there's information out there about you know, what you can do to be an ally, to show yourself as an ally. Um, I, I have always wondered um, when 
uh, when people are in need, I show up. And mm-hmm. so I'm so grateful that when, the, the, when you see these attacks that have been happening, people have been in need and people have shown up. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm so heartened by the organizations and the people that have really come together to help um, to help different communities that, like I said, otherwise would not have been really had direct contact. You know, one of the um, one of the, the surprising organizations that really helped, um, that really kind of uplifted me was I saw that there were these um, groups of people that were helping um, people walk from the subway back to their home mm-hmm. um, in New York City in Chinatown, and it was um, just so incredible to me that first of all that they needed something like that to happen, um, and B that people showed up just yeah. to walk people that they don't know from the subway back to their home to, mm-hmm. to give them a sense of safety, to give them a sense of, hey, I got your back, um, to give them a sense of, um, I, I feel like, is American pride. So that, that's kind of you know, the, the reality that we're living in right now. Yeah. Um, but thank you for, for giving okay. us the space on your show to talk about it. And Phobias and Yeste are out now theatrically. And now on Arts Express, Bro on the World Art Beat in a special virtual presentation at the American University in Cairo, Arts Express Paris correspondent Professor Dennis Bro delving into the work of the late eminent African-American expressionist painter who focused on identity and black history, Robert Colescott. In this excerpt, Bro explores Cold War expressionism, the abstract expressionist triumph, the elimination of social expression, and the defeat of Mexican muralism. This is from my book, largely ignored by the art world, but coming back into prominence now, and it just came into paperback, called Cold War Expressionism. And uh, it's, it's uh, an opportune time because the Whitney exhibit last year of the Mexican muralists really sort of opened things up in that direction. And there was even a claim in, of all places, Forbes magazine, that the greatest influence on American art was the Mexican muralists, greater than the influence of the French. At any rate, The first thing is the abstract expressionist triumph. In the 50s, and it's followed through into conceptualism in the 60s, that victory meant a cutting off of the political currents of modernism. And it was achieved at the expense of what I call the American social expressionists, who were sidelined in the period, and also through the ideological global domination of the Mexican muralists, who retained the political thrust of earlier modernisms. So to talk a bit about the dominance of abstract expressionism, victory of abstract expressionism is concomitant with the establishment of what was essentially a unipolar world with the U.S. dominant at the outset of the Cold War, when the U.S. was the most powerful country in the world, a victory sanctioned and promoted by the forerunners of today's global business elite, the Cold War corporate liberals. They attempted in its way to rewrite all art history and see itself as the culminating moment in that history, a move that, as Edward Said notes, is typical one in any imperial ideology. A capitalist bourgeois democracy hailed at the end of history so that abstraction was hailed as the end of aesthetics or the end of of art history. And this is still powerful in more elite circles, but in many ways, artists like Colescott have overthrown it. The high modernism of the Cold War in which individualism and freedom meant an art that, though bounded by a nutshell to quote, Shakespeare and Hamlet, it, it, it considered itself king of infinite space, a world where despair masquerades as the only possible hope. Tom Braden, uh, CIA, uh, went from executive secretary of MoMA in 48 and 49, the temple of abstract expressionism, to the CIA uh, as, in, as the charge of cultural affairs from 51 to 54. So there was direct state involvement in promoting this current abstract expressionism constitute the ideal style for these propaganda activities, he claimed. That is, once its artists, quote, had left behind their earlier interest in political activism, and Nelson Rockefeller termed it free enterprise painting, was promoted by the State Department as the official art of the Pax Americana of the developing empire of the free world. Its freedom from figurative art was also an injunction to in no way take up politics directly. This was celebrated by Clement Greenberg, who sort of noted very directly a relationship to empire. He said the main premises of Western art have at last migrated into the United States, along with the center of gravity of industrial production and political power. The answer, the riposte to Greenberg is Francis Saunders, who said, 
on the other hand, more and more painters produced more and more paintings, which got bigger and bigger and emptier and emptier. Jackson Pollock was seen as representing the young America, strong, adventurous, exuberant, and open to the world. So it was both an American thing, but it was also uh, a 50s sort of internationalism transformed into the imperial idea of universalism. That is, that one country's experience stands for all others, what we might call cosmopolitan provincialism. And so I want to go to uh, Rothko, and this is um, Absurd Expressionism and Empire. This is Rothko's uh, painting from 1952 to 53. These paintings have become trendy modes of celebrating a nouveau riche lifestyle when they were featured as a way to decorate large walls of new suburbanites in vogue in the early 50s and up to 57. For the most part, Rothko adopts the bright plastic colors of American goods and American commodification, colors that were circulating the globe and remaking everyone's world. And this is sort of the height of that period uh, before Rothko kind of turns uh, against this, which he does later on. There's also a transformation into the gallery collector system. Before we had had uh, some public funding of the arts. We'd had unions funding of the arts and government funding in the 30s. This all changed and art was no longer for the masses, but for a ruling elite. Greenberg said uh, art urged its artists to re-engage those to whom it actually belongs, our ruling class, to whom it was bound by an umbilical cord of gold. So the new consumer was um, not the learned aristocratic patron spending hours with the painting and its owner before purchase, the modern model, as Gibault describes it, was a hairy businessman dropping in to buy a painting at a gallery where the selling was impersonal, efficient, and rapid. And that art should properly remain silent on the world's increasingly more violent devastation under a form of capitalism where greed knows no bounds. Or that art's sole role must be confined to obscure and wry comments on its place in a certain highly limited and reified area of commodity exchange. Modern tendencies in which erupting shock-laden contents in this case, the, the, the shock-laden is the utter abandonment of figuration and, and embrace of total abstraction. Demolish the law of form are predestined to make peace with the world, which gives a cozy reception to unsublimated material as soon as the thorn is removed. Thank you, Dennis Brill. And we'll go out now on Arts Express with another historic moment, the 150th anniversary this year of the Paris Commune Uprising, commemorated this month on March 18th. And filmmaker Vicky presents the story of the Paris Commune, 1871, the first workers' revolution, however doomed. In 1871, for a few months during the summer, there was something unusual going on in Paris. A completely functional democratic commune was formed by the working people, and they brought reforms that would still be considered revolutionary today. Anarchists, Marxists and other socialists worked together on this project, which was supposed to be the beginning of a worldwide workers' revolution. But let's take a step back and see how we got there. As I am sure you are well aware, during the mid-18th century, the Industrial Revolution happened, which led to people who used to be farmers to be unemployed, since new farming equipment meant that farming requires less work and the introduction of private property centralized all farmland in the hands of the wealthy elites. Those new unemployed farmers went to the cities to work in the new industrialized factories. One of those cities was Paris and it had huge amounts of factories that needed workers. Of course, since it was before unions or labor rights, the workers had to work for 12, sometimes 18 hours a day without weekends or vacations to look forward to. For some reason, those people weren't happy and there were multiple riots and demonstrations throughout the century. The French government at the time was the second French empire ruled by Napoleon. No, no, not that one, his nephew, Napoleon III. He tried to emulate his uncle in every way he could, but he never managed it. And the fact that they were back to an emperor didn't quite please the people either. The climate in Paris was revolutionary. The high number of alienated workers cramped in small places and the availability of new socialist and anarchist literature gave Paris the potential for revolution. But while Napoleon III and his government were going about the usual business of suppressing workers, making themselves richer and granting themselves privileges, across the border there was someone provoking them. The Prussians under the leadership of Bismarck wanted a confrontation to get Elsass and Lorraine and to unify the smaller German states into a single German empire. 
The Germans sent a letter, which the French didn't like, so a week later Napoleon had declared that he would invade them. A wave of nationalism swept across France. The workers and revolutionaries of Paris focused on banding together with the bourgeoisie against the Prussians and forgot about the class struggle and stuff like that. They were going to destroy the Prussians and rule Europe just like they did under Napoleon I. And then the French army got itself surrounded and the emperor was captured by the Germans. Upon losing their head of government, the rest of the French leadership decided that this was as good a time as ever to proclaim the Second French Republic, which immediately got destroyed and then they proclaimed the Third French Republic and the Prussians promptly surrounded the capital city of Paris and asked for Alsace and Lorraine plus a lot of money in exchange for peace. The government declared that they would not give up an inch of territory to the Prussian invader. The Prussians dug trenches around Paris and decided to wait until the French would give up. Weeks turned into months and nothing much happened besides the fact that the food and coal supply in the city got lower. At the time there were 50,000 professional soldiers and 120,000 recruits who were loyal to the government in Paris and around 300,000 men from the National Guard. After some more starving and suffering there was a proposal for an armistice with the Germans. The condition was that the French army had to give up their arms. The National Guard was exempt from this because the government argued that they needed them to keep order in the city. Now, the National Guard was mostly made up of civilians and they were organized by the districts they were from. They mostly reflected the opinions of the workers of Paris and the surrounding provinces, which was inspired by socialist and anarchist writing. They weren't exactly disciplined and even demanded to elect their own officers and sometimes refused to follow orders unless they had democratically decided if they were okay with the order. Can you imagine that? Democracy in the army. After the climate became more heated and the government and the National Guard fought about a few guns, the government left the city. This means that the workers were now somehow in control of the city. The national government as well as the local government including the mayor had left. Suddenly everything the workers dreamed of could be achieved. They could create a new government based on the socialist and anarchist ideas they had read about. All that change was suddenly possible. They created a council to govern the commune and immediately held elections. The council was made up of representatives that represented about 20,000 citizens each. They could immediately called back by the voters if they backed something the people didn't agree with. The council also had some professions represented in it, for example, they had 33 industrial workers, 5 small business owners, 19 clerks and other big professions taking part in the voting in the meeting. This was to ensure that the laws they made wouldn't hurt the workers of Paris. They officially proclaimed the commune, they held a big parade and started to implement their changes. They changed the flag to a plain red banner and switched the calendar back to the disastrous thing they tried during the French Revolution a few decades earlier. The council was made up of different factions. There were the radicals that wanted to implement changes that would help the people and there were the moderates that didn't want to do that and argued that a better world isn't possible. This will be familiar to anyone who has ever seen any political debate. The radicals were made up of both anarchists and socialists who were happy to work together at this time. Because the anarchists proposed it, they decided to not have a president, mayor or commander in chief. You know, anarchism, rule without a leader. Those jobs were to be done by democratically elected committees instead. Oh, and when I mean democratically elected, I mean every man over 20. In the six times they met, they agreed on some nice changes, for example. The abolition of capital punishment, the abolition of military conscription, the separation of church and state, the remission of rents owed for the entire period of the siege, the abolition of child labor and night work in bakeries, the granting of pensions to the unmarried companions of children of National Guardsmen who gave their life in active service. This was new since until then only married people got the pensions. The free return by pawn shops of all workmen's tools and household items valued up to 20 francs pledged during the siege. The postponement of commercial debt obligations and the abolition of interest on debts. The right of the workers to take over and run an enterprise if it were deserted by its owner the prohibition of fines imposed by employers on the workmen. In addition to that, they seized church land and made it public. Churches could still continue to say and do religious stuff if they allowed political debates in churches in the evening. They then tore down the Vendome column, which was built to commemorate Napoleon's conquest and melted it down to create coins. They also tried to take Versailles with military force, but that failed spectacularly. They then decided not to conquer the rest of France, but to show them that a better way is possible to lead by example and demonstrate the superiority of their ideals. And that's why they made their biggest mistake. They let the Bank of France operate as usual. 
This means that the government, which had fled Paris, had both time and money to recruit an army. The other French provinces didn't want to follow the example of the Commune either. This was because most of rural France was incredibly conservative compared to the revolutionaries in Paris. After about three months, the army outside the city gates was ready to take Paris back by force. The following week was known as the Bloody Week. This is of course because the Emperor peacefully convinced the people of Paris to give up their new freedoms and they agreed and everything went over peacefully. No just kidding, they murdered everyone and burned down half of Paris. Afterwards, socialists and anarchists split because they disagreed on what the commune should have done differently. Anarchists argued that they should have spread the ideas of the commune more and socialists argued that they should have been more militarists to defend themselves. This split is there until today. So in conclusion, even though it ended quickly, the commune taught us many lessons about how to establish a democratic dictatorship of the proletariat and to be careful not to let outside powers become too powerful. And 41 years later, a Russian revolutionary and his successor would make sure that their revolution would not be crushed by foreign powers. But that's a story for another time. from the Paris Commune that the International Song originated. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station. Wake up all the builders, time to build a new land. I know we could do it if we all lend a hand. The only thing we have to do is put it in our minds. Surely things will work out. They do it every time. The world won't get no better if we just let it be. Change again, change again, just you and me. Change again, change again, just you and me. Change again, change again, go alone.